climate change was, for a while at least, that rarest of things in British politics, an issue over which there was broad inter-party consensus. In 2008, Ed Miliband oversaw the passing of the Climate Change Act, committing the UK to an 80% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. The act remained in place under David Cameron and under it Theresa May. She enshrined the target of net zero in law. Boris Johnson went further still, increasing the target for 2030 reductions to 68%. The UK has in fact delivered the fastest reduction in emissions amongst the G7 since 1990. Yet Rishi Sunak has recently sought to turn climate into a wedge issue. The Conservatives' victory in July's Uxbridge and South Ryslip by-election was widely seen as being down to its opposition to the new ultra-low emissions zone. And Mr Sunak has since watered down some of the UK's net zero policies, delaying by five years, for instance, the ban on the sale of new petrol and diesel cars. He argues his primary concern is helping families with the cost of living. But many observers think he's playing politics with the climate. At the Conservative Party conference, one of his ministers claimed that Labour wants to tax meat. So, is net zero set to become yet another Westminster political football? What do voters think about Sunak's changes? And how is Labour going to respond? What are the key policy steps to achieving net zero? And what are the economic costs involved? These are just some of the questions we're going to tackle today. My name is Anna Menna, I'm Director of UK and Changing Europe. Hello, my name is Hannah White and I am Director of the Institute for Government. I'm Paul Johnson, I'm Director of the Institute for Fiscal Studies. And I'm going to start with you, Paul. The Independent Government Advisor, the Climate Change Committee, says Sunak's proposals make net zero harder to achieve. Why is that? The path that we were supposed to be on was the path recommended by the Climate Change Committee as the most cost-effective way of getting to net zero by 2050. And that means doing a certain set of things in terms of moving to electric cars, getting uh, heat pumps in homes at a particular rate. And the more you push that back, the harder it is to get to net zero. So, for example, if we are still selling gas boilers in 2035, as we mm. will under Rishi Sunak's plans, a lot of them will still be around in 2050 um, in a way that fewer of them would have been had we banned mm. gas boilers earlier. And the same is true, clearly, of petrol and diesel cars. I mean, I would say that um, there is a case to be made for what the Prime Minister did, which is actually, particularly when it comes to replacing gas boilers, we weren't on track to achieve it anyway. Mm. So there was a disjuncture between the targets and the rhetoric on the one hand and the actual likelihood of achieving this on the other hand. It's also worth saying that actually what the Prime Minister's changed is not terribly big, really. So moving from 2030 to 2035, the point at which uh, petrol and diesel cars are banned, well, first, we expect most new cars in any case by 2030 to be electric. 2035 is in line with most other countries. And frankly, there was, in my view, no hope that we would entirely uh, get rid of gas boilers by uh, by 2035. So to some extent, I think what the Prime Minister was doing was accepting the reality. I mean, you might reasonably think, well, actually, the better thing to do was to, uh, was to ramp up action and actually to make things uh, change faster than they were. Uh, that in itself obviously has costs for government and households. So I'm not that down, in a sense, on, on the change. I think the, the big cost of the change is that it just increases 
uncertainty for industry and households. And if you increase uncertainty, that certainly does increase. Well, that, that increases the probability of things not happening. It increases the cost uh, to investors. And it maybe starts to chip away at the consensus that you were talking about. Okay, we'll come back to uncertainty. I have to say, I for one am very happy to have a few extra years to figure out how my boiler works. That's my target. Uh, <laughs> but, I would uh, say, I mean, one of the good things about this whole debate we've started to have is is that we are having a debate now about the costs of net mm-hmm. zero and how those are going to fall on households. And the fact is that Rishi Sunak changing some of these dates may have been the first point at which some people really registered the fact that they were going to have to think about the the lifespan of their boiler or their car. And so I I think this is kind of politically the next step we need is to have politicians who are discussing the relative merits of different approaches. As you say, Paul, the Climate Change Committee has been sort of has set out a a plan which has been endorsed by Parliament, but not with really very much debate. Um, And so, as you say, these specific changes might not make a huge difference, but they, we are talking about it, which is good. And I think that's really important because I think one of the consensus is great, but one of the costs of the consensus is there, as, as you say, has been no real discussion about what's needed. Now, what's happened so far for households' point of view has been easy. I mean, we've moved very quickly, actually, to much greener electricity, but that hasn't changed anything for for you or me, but um, moving to an electric car will make a difference. Getting rid of our boilers is going to make a huge difference and this has partly been i think you know you had some of the sort of green green ngos and so on saying we can get there much much more quickly and that i think gives everyone the sense that getting there by 2050 is a bit slow and it's a bit easy well it's not i mean you know the idea that we could decarbonize in the next five or ten years is completely for the birds and so actually having having a realistic sense of what's going to uh, be required is, is is quite important has been buried i think until now and i think the reason if we're frank about it that it has started to come up now is because it suits the government to have a narrative where they can be talking about cost of living, which is, I mean, I think most people expect going to continue to be a major political narrative in the run into the next election. And the way Rishi Sunak wanted to present these changes was that they were going to help. Some of the things he said were slightly disingenuous in the sense of, you know, we're never, you're never going to be forced to change your gas boiler. Well, you weren't anyway for a heat pump. It was the point at which it, it stopped working. You wouldn't have been able to replace it with another gas boiler. But there was no sense previously that people were going to be forced to rip out boilers. Yeah, well, there, there, is, there, is, a, there is a point at which the ga- gas network becomes unsustainable. I mean, if, if everyone else in your local area has moved to a heat pump and no one else is using gas, then actually... You, you can't keep that oh, gas network. Point, yeah. so, so, so at some point, and again, I think this is a conversation that hasn't really been had, uh, at some point, you know, actually, you know, irrespective of what the Prime Minister says, you, some people, I think, will end up being forced to because the you, know, you can't keep the gas network going for a very small number, both sort of economically, but also practically, you can't fill up the gas network to run five boilers. Can we just focus on this issue of costs for a minute? I mean, the Prime Minister was very clear that he said what he was doing was helping families with the cost of living crisis. But what I found the most interesting thing about the Climate Change Committee's report was it said the moves are likely to increase both energy bills and motoring costs. So what do we make of this helping with the cost of living crisis argument? Let's let's take where we've got to. Moving to wind and solar over the last 10 years um, has involved us paying more per unit electricity over much of that period than we would have done had we carried on the old gas production. Right now, because gas is so expensive and because new green 
energy is is much cheaper mm-hmm. actually we can go green now uh, at zero or possibly negative um, net costs. But cost per unit electricity over the last several years has been higher than it would have been without the, the green movement. What's really helped households is that most appliances have become much more efficient, so actual bills haven't gone up. So that's been quite uh, that's been quite helpful. Going forward, as um, price of electric cars come down, and because it's much cheaper. I'm told, to run an electric car than it is to run a traditional car. Over the lifetime of a car, very soon, we'll be at a position where it is cheaper to buy and run uh, electric cars. I don't know if we're quite there yet. And so, in a sense, if you leave people the option, people still have the option of buying petrol Mm -hmm. cars. Well, they've got the option of buying uh, electric ones as well. The big unknown here on, on the car front, and the biggest unknown fiscally of this whole transition, is are we going to tax the driving of electric cars? I mean, at the moment, despite 13 years of real terms cuts, there's still something like £30 billion a year of revenue comes from selling petrol and diesel. Uh, on current trajectory, we're going to lose all of that. And if that's not replaced by anything, then yes, it is massively cheaper to run an electric <laughs> car than it is to run a petrol car. It seems to me implausible that we're not. Well, it's not implausible. It seems to be uh, suboptimal <laughs> if we're not going to find some way of taxing the driving uh, of electric cars. When it comes to replacing gas boilers with heat pumps, I think you know this is just a colossal, a colossal change that mm. needs to happen over a significant period of time. Every household in the country, or whatever it is, the 80 or 90% that have gas boilers, are going at some point to need to take those out and probably replace them with some kind of heat pump. Now, we haven't done anything on that scale to every household since we moved from town gas to natural gas in the 1970s. And this is a bigger thing because this is kind of completely getting rid of boilers and completely uh, and completely changing the way that things are done. Now, um, that is going to be very expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, probably that's going to be a cost that falls on the taxpayer at large because I don't think we're going to be able to ask households, um, or certainly not all households, to, to face that cost. So the impact on cost for households is going to depend very much there on how that is shared between the households, the suppliers, and the government. So, Hannah, I want to turn to what's become a bit of a hardy perennial, which is long-term planning and consistency in government. Ford's UK chair said in response to Sunak's announcement that our business needs three things from UK government, ambition, commitment, and consistency. A relaxation of 2030 would undermine all three. So it's just, it strikes me that when we're talking about net zero, perhaps more than virtually any other policy area, that long-term planning is absolutely fundamental, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. And Net zero is a sort of a really good example of a policy area which is difficult for government on a number of levels. And one of them is the long sort of time horizon. The other is that it's a sort of it's about prevention. It's about trying to avoid harms which are going to come down the track in the medium and longer term, which maybe the people, the voters are not necessarily perceiving yet. Although I think given some of the severe uh, sort of weather and climate effects we've seen around the, the globe, that's getting an easier and more sort of immediate threat that people perceive. And then net zero also sort of requires the government to, to, to coordinate itself internally, cuts across lots of different policy areas. 
and it also is a policy area where sort of education and skills are going to be super important you know if we are going to do the basics as as paul says around who who exactly is going to be available to to retrofit all these houses and to change boilers and so on but also if we're going to make the most of the economic opportunities of of net zero but to go back to your original point which was about sort of policy consistency we did some work here at the institute recently on offshore wind policy and one of the lessons that was clear about why we've been relatively successful in developing that as an industry and as, as a, a means of electricity production in the UK was because of a good degree of policy consistency over a number of different governments. But more recently, we've seen quite a lot of inconsistency over green policies. Obviously, we've been talking about Rishi Sunak's most recent changes, but we've also seen things like the the Green Homes Grant and initiatives by the government which have been sort of put in place without sufficient prior planning, thinking about things like supply chains in order to, you know, be able to do retrofit or whatever. And then it hasn't worked. And then they've very quickly sort of switched them off and tried thought that they're going to try something differently. So it is a problem. And the big picture, as Paul was saying earlier, is about if the government wants the private sector to bear quite a lot of the cost of uh, investing in the infrastructure we're going to need uh, to, to respond to net zero, then industry needs uh, policy consistency to know, you know what it can expect in terms mm. of return for its investment over the, over the medium and longer term. Uh, and I mean, speaking of inconsistency, Labour have insisted that they want to go back to the 2030 deadline for uh, stopping the sale of petrol and diesel cars. And I suppose my, my question with regard to that is, isn't that just uncertainty upon uncertainty? There's a wonderful Institute for Government Explainer that came out recently about when we could have a general election. So it might be January 2025. Doesn't that just mean that companies who are looking to invest in this space now essentially could have 13 months of not knowing what deadline they're working to? Does that help? I mean, I think on that specific point, industry, the target for industry's production hasn't changed. Yeah. The, the, the difficulty was that wasn't immediately clear. So what changed was um, about the requirement for consumers, mm-hmm. I think. But you're right, because the polls are where they are, industry now looking at at the UK sort of government will be asking itself, are the people we're talking to now the people we're going to be talking to in 18 months' time? And therefore, what decisions should we be making? I mean, that's obviously always a question that industry asks themselves in any democracy. Mm. But when you have an opposition party seemingly ahead in the polls, it becomes more of a a consideration, I think. It's also worth saying in terms of how this impacts industry in terms of manufacturing cars um, you know we're a small market mm. and the rest of the world um, or certainly EU I think is looking at 2035 but all manufacturers are expecting a very high fraction of their cars to be electric by 2030 with the UK being a tiny part of that so how much difference this really makes to the manufacturing side I'm not terribly sure perhaps on the on the retail side on the sort of um, you know, garages that fix cars kind of side uh, how fast they need to move from one to the other yeah. that may be affected but the you know in terms of and I don't know what the numbers are across the world but hundreds of millions of cars are, are built every year and we, we we buy as I say you know maybe one or two percent of those mm-hmm. um, in the UK and by 2030 I don't know maybe 80 percent of these will be electric anyway so the, the change in the UK target is it's pretty trivial as far as most manufacturers are concerned. So if we just, let's just zoom out for a minute. Uh, you often hear talk about how well the UK is going in comparative terms, in terms of emissions reductions compared to other similar countries. So I suppose the obvious 
question here is, is that right? How, how, how much have we done so far and how much have we left to do to meet our ambitions? It's all partly right. So it's true that we've roughly halved our emissions since 1990 in terms of the emissions we produce mm-hmm. in this country. Now, that's partly because back in 1990, we were producing an awful lot of electricity through burning coal. And simply by moving from coal to gas, as we did during the 1990s, before a lot of the climate change policies were in place, we reduced emissions. And then through the 2010s, um, we have been really quite successful at moving to particularly wind and a bit of solar power as well. So that I think getting on for half of our electricity is now produced using green, um, mm-hmm. you know, non-carbon producing electricity. So on that set, and, and that, that is a bigger drop than most, if not all other developed country. So that, that that's great. But, and there, there, are, there, there are several buts here, and what, one but is that if you measure this, so that's all measured according to where uh, at the emissions created in this country, and that's what all of our targets are based on, what's created in this country. What arguably matters much more is what we consume. So, I mean, we mm-hmm. consume lots of goods produced in other countries, and particularly China, but also Germany and elsewhere. If you measure on our consumption basis, it's, it's not so much a 50% reduction, it's nearer 25 to 30% reduction. Right. So, so nowhere near um, as impressive. And the other but is that relative to many other countries, we're not in such a good position in terms of the next steps. So we've allowed our nuclear power fleet to broadly uh, come to the end of its life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's going to be important for all sorts of reasons going forward, not least to provide sort of base load. Um, we've do- not done a good job in insulating houses and getting them ready for the next stage, in particular mm-hmm. the use uh, of heat pumps and the like. And as we've discussed, despite the sort of consensus around uh, a target, we've not really had, certainly in recent couple of years, actually longer than that, we've not really had either the consistency of policy or the actual action to do the next really tough stuff, which right. is the housing, the industry, the agriculture, and all those sorts of things. So, so yes, we've done very well to get down by 50% on a production basis, much less well on a consumption basis, and the tough stuff is still ahead. Is that right, Hannah, that we've actually done some of the easy stuff to date and the really difficult bits that are going to be really intruding on people's lives and their wallets are yet to come? Yeah, I think that's right. And I think in some ways that's not surprising, is it? Because for governments and for for oppositions, being the people to broach the really difficult stuff, which is really going to, to cost people money, is not attractive. And when it's not you, it, well, you know, when our electoral cycle is five years and the, the, some of these costs to the country are some decades off, it doesn't seem like there's going to be much electoral benefit to you and possibly mm-hmm. any electoral cost in, in, in having these conversations. And both the US and EU have industrial strategies to help them meet net zero. We don't. Labour says we need one. Do you think that would help? I think this is something that at last year's party conference, um, the Labour Party started to talk about in terms of the investment that they were going mm-hmm. to make. It, that was seen as their response to what's been proposed in the US and indeed in the EU. But we are, of course, a much smaller player. 
Labour this year at conference, in the Raptor conference, some of the sort of numbers that they've talked about, the 28 billion they're now saying would be investment by the end of the next parliament if they came into government. And some of the some of what they're counting within that seems to be sort of moving around a bit. But it is the one place really where they've talked about investment and, and spending on a large scale, yeah. which is significant, I think, given the uh, tightness of, of um, the economic situation at, at the moment, what it actually translates into, I think, is much less clear. And presumably, Paul, there's a, there's a, there's a linkage here with our ability or inability to, com- to finish large infrastructure projects. You know, reaching net zero would be a lot better with a functioning train system, for instance. <laughs> Indeed. Um, we don't have a great record on that over recent years, that's for sure. Although, again, to be fair, uh, the, the movement to, to wind and solar power, which is, of course, financed or at least delivered by the private sector, though financed mm-hmm. through our bills, has been really pretty successful. But a lot of what needs to happen going forward is going to require more direct government spending and intervention, again, particularly when it comes to decarbonising our houses. Um, Now, it's not beyond our capacity to do that, to sort of go back again to what I said earlier. We did something extraordinary in the 1970s, and I just about remember this happening at my house, actually, as the the sort of um, the tradespeople came round to move us. Actually, we initially had a a sort of big oil thing, and then, Mm. and and then, but but we we, um, moved from town gas um, to natural gas, and that required as I understand, an average of five visits to every household in the country to to adapt boilers. But that took a long time. And uh, it'll take a long time to do that as we move to to heat pumps. And it'll take up training a lot of people because this is an entirely different kind of thing and it'll take the capacity. But some of the energy companies are developing this. I think Octopus, for example, is Mm -hmm. um, already moving towards sort of being able to install these. But that's just one part of it. Then there's, there's, there's what we need to do with industry and that that again that requires not just an internal industrial strategy that requires a trade strategy because if you know it's all very well us decarbonizing our own manufacturing but if we continue to simply import stuff which has got lots of carbon embedded that doesn't do much good and we need to support our industry if we're going to lay costs on them at least in the short run so that they can't compete with countries that aren't doing this that that becomes difficult so that that's a real industrial strategy. And then, as Hannah said, um, the, the, what, what Labour is essentially doing is promising an extra £20 billion a year by the end of a parliament on green investment. Now, that's quite a lot on green investment. Mm-hmm. It's worth saying that does mean all other investment is going to drop if that's exactly what they do. So that's, that's a real cost. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but actually, directing that kind of money well is not straightforward. I mean, one of the things the last Labour government found, it wasn't really until sort of 11, 12 years in that they were actually able to spend all of the money that they said they were going to spend on investment projects. So it certainly makes sense to ramp this up over a parliament. But even over a five-year period, ramping up 20 billion is quite a... And ramping it up well and effectively and efficiently, it's it's, it's quite a target they've set themselves. And talking of targets, a lot is made, Hannah, of the fact that our net zero target is legally binding. And yet a cynic would say, OK, it might be legally binding, but the Prime Minister managed to just brush off the complaints of the Climate Change Committee. Uh, what does legally binding mean in a practical sense? Does it make a difference? Well, I think in a democratic system where you have parliamentary sovereignty, it means very little uh, indeed. We've already seen with the legislative target for 
uh, spending on international development that uh, a, a government can change its mind. And we've already seen there the shift from the legislative 0.7% target to what we've t- been told is a, t- a temporary 0.5%. And there's nothing to say that a future government might not cha- decide to legislate to change the target in law. I think what's more significant around net zero are the international uh, comparators. So it's more significant that there are uh, political uh, imperatives on governments to not look like we're falling behind what other countries are doing. Um, I mean, that said, I think what the current government strategy looks like is actually a deliberate decision not to feel that the UK has to be out in front leading this stuff, but that to say, well, there's you know some first mover disadvantage um, and we're going to let some other people make some of the, the, the difficult moves first. And, and we're actually comfortable now with being sort of in the wake of the first movers. So I, I think, as I say, it's the legislative target. Yes, it's there. It has some significance, but it's more significant that uh, if it looks like the UK is, is a laggard on this, then politicians might not want that to be the case. I mean, this is an interesting question. I'd be really interested in your view, Anand, and as well, about how a lot is made or a lot has been made of the, the role of the UK as a leader mm-hmm. in this. And it's very hard. I've always found it very hard to tell whether this is pure hubris that, uh, you know, the, the, the idea that the UK will drag the world along with it, or whether it's a real sort of world-leading diplomatic sort of thing that it's good to have. I mean, ignoring the economics. Is this something where the UK can really say, you know, we're we're a leader, we're making a difference to what other people are doing, it's worthwhile for our place in the world to be doing things faster? Or is that just just hubris and the EU and the US look at us and think, well, you know, who cares? Well, I mean, I think it's fair to say we were leaders in the sense that we were first movers in a lot of this stuff and we were slightly ahead of the curve. Where it was lesser case of leadership was, I suppose, in the relative absence of followers. Uh, and, there, and, there, and there, I think, the, you know, the US and the EU aren't the issue, are they? It is countries like China and India, and that's where the real struggle is. I mean, it's an interesting question as to whether, for instance, when the UK goes to COP28, Rishi Sunak, should he go, finds it harder to talk the talk having rode back on some of his commitments. And I suspect, suspect it will be slightly harder, yes. Though, Given the experience of our government, I suspect we're in for many more years of world-beating rhetoric, at least, because that's how we like to talk, isn't it? And, I mean, does the world take any notice? Within the European Union, we exerted quite a lot of influence, you know, thinking back to Tony Blair, the Hampton Court Summit and things like that. We, I think we were relatively successful in changing the terms of the debate, yes. And the Nick, I mean, Nick Stern's review back in when it was 2007, yep. one senses that was a sort of global phenomenon, not just a UK phenomenon. No, absolutely. So I don't think, I don't think it is absolutely without credence. I think in many ways we were a sort of trendsetters in this. We were sort of forging ahead of other countries. But of course... You know, as people like Tony Blair have said recently, ultimately the battle against climate change is going to be won in the massive continent-sized countries. Uh, and what we ourselves do is relatively trivial. We shouldn't use that as an excuse to do nothing, but we do need to keep that in mind all of the time, that we are, you know, in the end, a very small player in this against the billion people, countries like India and China. I think that's where, I mean, it seems to me what 
what politicians need to focus on is our, our USP. I mean, what are the things which might be relatively niche um, areas of, of green industry? What are the things where, you know, we can we can pilot or we can, you know, exemplify different ways, different approaches? We're never going to be, as you're both saying, you know, making the decisive difference in terms of the cuts that we're able to make. Um, we're never going to be, because of the size of our market and you know, how we're positioned as a country, we're never going to be leading on some of the really major planks. But what, what are the, the very specific contributions that the UK can make? And I suppose in economic terms, Paul, the question I'd have is, is there an economic cost to deciding not to be the first mover anymore? I mean, the, ra- the economic rationale for having 2030 while the EU had 2035 is we can crowd in that foreign investment because we're going to get moving a bit quicker. Was that ever... A compelling argument? I don't know. Look, there were a lot of what I thought at the time were pretty dubious arguments in the in the 2010s about how you know, if we moved quickly on on wind and solar on so, and so on, that would be a big boon to our industry, and we would be the people making the windmills mm. and so on. That never struck me as being plausible. I mean, we just don't, for whatever reason, we don't have a comparative advantage in heavy manufacturing. And so it's proved. I I think very few of um, these things are manufactured in this country. That said, uh, we do have, and we are developing a uh, a capacity in servicing these things and in providing the sort of financial and legal and other services Mm. that uh, that go with them. But again, I mean, if you're looking at cars. Uh, we produce a reasonable number of the cars that we drive in this country, but most of those are made up of batteries made in one place and yeah. wheels made in another and so on and so on. We are not in the in the vanguard of um, producing batteries. I mean, we've just heard some a very large amount of money is being used to persuade uh, manufacturers in Somerset that they're going to have a great big um, battery factory with a large dose of public funding. An interesting sort of question as to how that works out around the world as all countries effectively bribe um, big companies to come and manufacture in their areas. My my instinct is if we're, uh, you know, as long as we're in the sort of first wave, um, there's probably limited value to sort of trying to go ahead of that wave in mm. most uh, in most areas. Again, mostly because a lot of this is A, happening internationally, B, being driven by um, multinational companies, uh, and therefore C, the, 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 there's all sorts of um, other things that drive the manufacturers to yeah. decide where they go, but there are some service areas where where the UK might have a comparative advantage. I, I think the other thing to bear in mind, zooming out to the big picture here, is the debate which is emerging now is all about the costs of net zero and where they fall and who they fall on and when when they fall, but. What we need to bear in mind is that doing nothing is not cost-free. And, you know, in any case, we know, uh, I mean, these things are quite difficult to predict as you look ahead, but we know that there will be costs of climate impacts for the country. The National Adaptation Plan says climate impacts could cost England's economy between 1% and 1.5% of GDP by 2045, rising to 2 to 4% uh, a year by the, the end of the century, you know, those are not small amounts of money. And so, you know, we have to bear in mind, you know, these are these are balances of cost and there are future costs which will come if we do not do enough. Yeah, I mean, there's, I think the issue is about speed and whether the leaders are not in the mitigation area. And, you know, if we were to do nothing, 
I mean, it's, it's just implausible that we were to do nothing, given what um, you know. It's not. It's not the case that other countries are doing nothing. The EU is doing a lot. The mm. US increasingly is doing a lot. Even countries like China and India are beginning to make yeah. changes. It's, it's implausible we do nothing. But I think your point, Hannah, about adaptation is really important because. In a sense, it's a little bit odd. I mean, most of the focus has been about mitigation. I mean, most of the headlines, most of the things you'll see in the newspapers and so on are about you know, what can we do to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions, which is great. Um, but as we've discussed, we only produce 1% or 2% of the world's greenhouse gas emissions. But in terms of adapting, that's just us. I mean, that's something that is entirely in our hands. It's our country. We, it, whatever, we, we, whatever we do is in our control. Um, we know that there is climate change happening. I mean, we're recording this just after some of the worst floods in Scotland and in the north of England in generations, um, which you know may or may not be specifically related to climate change. But these, these, these things are clearly happening worse and more frequently as the climate changes. So flood, things like flood defences, things like adapting our homes so that they can cope with more wet or more heat, um, these are things that are in our control, um, and we should be almost certainly doing more of because we will. You know, the, the sort of the human misery that will happen here is as nothing compared with the human misery that will happen in Bangladesh and sub-Saharan a- Africa and so on as the climate changes. But that's not much consolation to those people whose homes and shops and businesses are flooded or who um, are struggling with the, the heat in the summer. Though hopefully, you know, we'll, we'll have um, less struggle with severe cold in the winter. But the climate here is changing and we will need to adapt. And that's really just up to us. And of course, all those issues, particularly sub-Saharan issues, are, are ones that are going to feed into something we're going to talk about in a future episode, which is the question of immigration. That's it for this week. I do hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Expert Factor. Remember, you can find us at Acast, iTunes, Spotify, wherever you find your podcasts. Do subscribe and please do leave us a review. We like to know that you haven't had anywhere near enough of experts. We'll be back next week for another deep dive. Please do join us and do get in touch to suggest the type of topics you'd like us to explore. Until then, it's goodbye from me. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from them. See you for the next instalment of The Expert Factor.